Johnny David. Welcome everybody out. I'm happy to be out. It's been a very delightful day in a lot of ways. First and foremost, the opportunity to worship the Lord. And uh, always thankful for that. And uh, it is a privilege. You never know what might happen in life that will strike us down, take away the privilege of assembling together. And so I hope we always appreciate the opportunities and the privileges to assemble together and to take full advantage of the blessings that the Lord grants unto us. I invite you to get your Bibles out. If you have any questions of anything that is said, we're happy to address those questions. We want people to have understanding. It's very important to have understanding. Paul said, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Uh, even though it may sound very eloquent to speak uh, words in another language and sound pretty fancy, but if there's no understanding, it's really not beneficial. So, very important to have understanding. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, of course, follows chapter 1, but it's it's drawing a conclusion of the argument of chapter 1. Chapter 1 is introduced that Christ is God's spokesman today. They're in the first three verses, and that he, of course, bears the image of God and the brightness of his glory, etc. And then he goes on to show, the writer, that Jesus is superior to angels, because in the Hebrew mind, uh, they believe that angels were very uh, wonderful beings, but Christ is greater than angels. And therefore, Jesus, of course, is very important. And so we pick up here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, with the word, therefore. Therefore, that is drawing upon the conclusion that Christ is superior to angels and that he is God's spokesman today. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And so the conclusion is drawn by exhortation here in these four, first four verses. In particular, I want you to notice that phrase there, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So great a salvation. Some says, such a great salvation, depending on what translation that you're using, or so great salvation, if the old King James. But that's what we want to talk about, is this great salvation that is described here in verse 3. The first thing we want to do is to talk about the development of this great salvation. And what we're going to see from eternity past to eternity future, Peter describes this great salvation, that is, the scheme of redemption, the scheme of salvation. That is, the whole big picture of what the writer says when he talks about such a great salvation That is, of God, the sweeping plan of God's redemption. All right, when we turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about that this great salvation that the Hebrew writer is speaking about was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. Notice there in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God uh, the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ Grace be unto you, and peace be multiplied. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge. That is, God knew beforehand 
when he decided he was going to create humanity, and that humanity would be creatures of absolute free will, which means that, yeah, they could choose to do good, yeah, they could choose to do bad. If they choose to do good, okay, he would have a plan. If they choose to do bad, he would have a plan. What would he do? And so he determined beforehand that if man chose to sin, he had a plan in his mind that is a scheme of redemption, of salvation. And that, of course, was by his grace and his goodness. There in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Who verily was foreordained. Foreordained, that is, pre-planned, that God had this in his mind before the foundation of the world that was manifest in you uh, in the last, uh, mani- uh, manifest in the last, uh, in these last times for you. Alright, so God had this plan in eternity past. Now what happened? Well, as you turn to the book of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it talks about creation and uh, Adam and Eve. And then we have Genesis chapter 3, and what happened? Well, the serpent, that is Satan in the form of the serpent, came and tempted Eve. And she fell in transgression and she bit her husband. And then she also, or he also, he did that which was wrong. And so you have the fall of man. And beginning in Genesis chapter 3, throughout the Old Testament, that little pyramid thing is representative of Mount Sinai, throughout the patriarchal age, then through the Mosaic age, God prophesied, beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that of the seed of the woman, that there would come one that would bruise the head of the serpent, that is, deliver the death blow to the serpent, and that's what would take place when Jesus would die on the cross. And throughout the Old Testament, what do you have? It was prophesied of the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One who would come and bring redemption for us to carry out the scheme of redemption. Notice how Peter says it there in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Of which salvation, that is a scheme of redemption, that's in Christ Jesus. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. So what happened? They prophesied of this grace, this goodness that was to come. Through Christ Jesus, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which is in them did signify when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So when you look out through, look back through the Old Testament prophets, they say, okay, the Messiah is coming and it's glorious and it's wonderful. And there were things that they would scratch their heads and say, well, I'm not sure exactly what that's all about, but it's something great that God has planned for us. And so it says in verse 12, Unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister to the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you, with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look unto. So throughout the Old Testament, they prophesied the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And this glorious kingdom that the Messiah would establish, that we are now part of, that we enjoy the fulfillment, the fruition of these things that were prophesied throughout the Old Testament, the foretelling of all these uh, great things that would happen, of course, in Christ Jesus. This was prophesied. And there are about 300 prophecies, I am told. I never actually went and counted them all up. But there are about 300 prophecies about Jesus, various aspects, where he would be born, born of the virgin, and how he would die, and he would be buried with the transgressors, I mean, etc., etc., all kinds of prophecies that were all fulfilled in Christ Jesus, not not 50% of them, not 70% of them, no, 100% accurate, and all the prophecies all came to pass. 
of this great salvation. Then what do we have? Well, Peter then talks about the price that was paid. The blood of Christ, as we saw there in verse 2. Look down in verse 18 and 19. It says, for as, uh, for as much as you know, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, Peter says. He says, as silver and gold, we were not bought back. Redemption is the idea of being bought back. It's like if you were short on funds, and maybe you needed some money, and so you go down to the pawn shop, and you say, hey, I've got... I got this watch. Hey, I got, uh, you know, an iPhone. I got a new, new Samsung, uh, Galaxy. And hey, can I, can I put that on hock? And so they lend you money against your property. And then you go and buy it back. That's the idea of redemption. You buy it back. And so that's what redemption is. That we're bought back from under the, uh, under the wages of sin and the price of sin. We don't have nothing to pay it back. And so Peter says we're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. From your vain manner of life received uh, by tradition from your fathers, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so Jesus pray, paid the price, and it was a very hefty price. It wasn't like people give blood today. You know, you go down to the blood bank and it's all sterile and clean, and they put a little needle and they draw out a pint of blood, and then you get up and you go on your merry way. It's not like that. When it talks about Christ shed his blood, that is, his blood was poured out until he ultimately died is the significance when he gave his blood. Not just give a pie, the, the point of giving his life. That is, Jesus died and shed his blood for our forgiveness and for our redemption to bring about salvation. That is, to be saved or to be rescued from the condemnation of sin. This was all in the mind of God, so the price was paid. And then beginning, right after the cross, 50 days, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, well, the gospel began to be revealed. You see, it was prophesied. Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies, and then it began to be revealed. It had to be explained. We wouldn't know why they didn't know in the Old Testament. But it was all revealed, and so now we understand it. And that is by the apostles and prophets, as Peter said as we were preaching the gospel. Notice there in the book of Hebrew, or excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about this revelation. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me to you, word, how that by revelation, that is, this information came directly upon Paul by revelation. He made known to me the mystery, as I wrote afford a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my mystery, my knowledge, and the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto those holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what happened? Well, the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles. Acts chapter 2, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then after that, the apostles laid hands upon the Christians and they received spiritual gifts and there were those who were prophets and they did what? Well, by inspiration. That is, God breathed, the Holy Spirit breathed upon them and so when they would write, well, at first, as they began to speak and then later, as they began to write, by inspiration, they were giving the revelation, making known and explaining all about what was prophesied and to explain exactly what this great salvation was all about. 
And beginning there on the day of Pentecost, it was offered to humanity. How so? Well, by faith. Look there in First Peter chapter one, in First Peter chapter one and verse five. It says, uh, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's by faith. That's how we accept this great salvation, by faith. Look at verse 7. He says, that the trial of your faith. You see, it's conditionally received by faith. We believe. Well, why do we believe? Well, there's all kinds of reasons to believe. That is because the testimony was given by the apostles that they saw the resurrected Jesus. All the miracles that Jesus wrought. His death, burial, and resurrection, all these things is proof positive that He is the Son of God. The apostles performed miracles. They sealed their testimony with their blood. They had no reason to tell a lie. Yes, Jesus was raised from the dead. And so we believe this message. And, of course, there's all kinds of evidence from the Bible itself that there is inspiration of the Scriptures, that these Scriptures are God-breathed. And so they preached the message, and people believe the message. And look there in verse 9. He says, receiving the end of your faith. So salvation is offered, but it's accepted by faith. Now, faith that saves is an obedient faith. Well, how do we know that? Well, we know that. Look at verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, uh, foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. You see, saving faith, living faith, is an obedient faith. Look down in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look down there in number 22. Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love or unpretentious, uh, that is, uh, sincere, genuine. Love of the brethren. See that you love one another with pure heart fervently. So, the salvation is offered by faith. It's revealed by the apostles, and then we accept it by faith, which is an obedient faith, which is a working faith, as James would describe it, a living faith. And we receive the redemption, the salvation, the, the, the rescue from sin and transgression. Then, as we saw there in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of our souls. Well, what does that involve? Well, Peter describes that in a little bit further detail there in verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father, blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can, of course, enjoy redemption. He says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. You see, when we talk about the ultimate end of our Salvation, the salvation of our souls, that is an eternity. We have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, and fades not away. That's a big contrast to what we are used to in this world. Because everything that we're used to, it breaks down, it wears out, it's corruptible, doesn't last forever. You know, you get a nice pair of jeans, you like them, they're comfortable, but then over time they wear out. You get a pair of tennis shoes you really like, and what happens? Well, they wear out. You get a car you like and you use it and next thing you know, things begin to break down and problems happen with it. And then after a period of time, it becomes so old and the problem becomes so great, it's like it's not even worth fixing. So you just turn it in and get you another one, get you a newer model or a brand new one or something. 
Well, that's that's the things we're accustomed to, things that break down. But heaven is described as a place that's incorruptible, that's undefiled, and that fades not away. He says, reserved in heaven for you. The ultimate end of our salvation is a home in heaven. And we have to have reservation. It's reserved for you. It's kind of like, you know, you like watching Kentucky basketball or Alabama football. You just don't march up to the stadium down in Alabama and say, uh, I like to go see the, see the guys play football. Or I like to watch the Wildcats play tonight. You just don't go bebopping in. You'll first come, first serve. It's not the way it works. You have to get reservations. Reservations are called tickets. Well, so it is. You just don't bebop into heaven by accident, by chance. It's not first come, first serve. It's those who make the reservation. How's that? Well, by faith and obedience. That is, we accept this offer of redemption. And that's what he says. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so when the Hebrew writer talks about this great salvation... There you have, from eternity past to eternity future, this was the mind of God, this was the plan of God, of how to bring about redemption for fallen man. Now, who could have thought of that? Certainly, certainly wasn't men. Men couldn't think of a plan. Men couldn't figure out how, it's kind of like one of the early uh, uh, Greek writers of the first century, or maybe somewhere around the time of Christ, the uh, the writer, this Greek writer said, you know, the gods may forgive, but I don't see how. How can God, how can the gods forgive? He couldn't figure it out. That, I mean, where's justice? People do wrong and, and you just sort of wave the hand and say, well, it's okay, it's nothing and just forget it. No, justice, our, our sense of justice doesn't allow that. So how does God maintain justice in the universe and yet offer redemption? That's where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus paid the price for our sin. Therefore, God maintains his justice and yet shows mercy and kindness and grace and favor toward us in this great scheme of redemption. And that's why it is a great salvation. All right, now let's talk about some reasons why. Talks about so great a salvation. Well, why is the salvation great? Why would you think it's great? I've got six reasons I want to suggest. Reason number one, the great wisdom of God is why the salvation is great. If you notice there in the book of Romans chapter 11, the book of Romans, from a little bit different angle, is talking about salvation also. Theme of the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, salvation, redemption. So Paul in the book of Romans, from a little bit different angle, again talking about this great salvation. And he shows in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that both Jew and Gentile understand. And therefore, that's why we need forgiveness. If you're not lost in sin, why would you need a Savior? You wouldn't. It's like if you're driving somewhere and you're not lost, you don't need to stop and ask for direction. You don't need to get the GPS out. You don't need to ask Google Maps how to get to... Why? You're not lost. But when you're lost, it's like, whoa, we need some help here. We are lost. We stop and ask somebody. You know, we get the we get the GPS. We're trying to figure out how we need to... Well, spiritually, we're lost. That's why we need Christ. We're lost in sin. That's our problem. That's the greatest problem of humanity is our sin and transgression. And so Paul, he shows how God 
has this great scheme of redemption that's in Christ that was, of course, foreshadowed in the Old Testament sacrifices and that the Jew and Gentile are blended together in the one body that he brings about reconciliation. And so at the end of all this doctrinal discussion through these first 11 chapters, he ends there in Romans chapter 11 and listen to what he says in verse 33. All the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? You know, sometimes we're working on some project and we're not sure what to do, and so we just sort of ask around, you know, try to get advice. We're working on our house. We took down some paneling and the walls were rough and I was asking some folks around and, you know, on the internet, figuring out how to try to slick those walls down, smooth them down. And anyway, got the information I needed. But when you're not sure, you, yes. Isn't that what we do? And so Paul says, who has been his counselor? Who did God say, hey, I'm kind of stumped on this. I'm not sure what to do on this particular point. God didn't do that. He had it in his mind exactly how to plan it all out and how to bring it to pass. Who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. The tremendous wisdom. Could you think of some scheme of redemption apart from Christ that would bring about salvation? Just challenge anybody to think, just try to think of some scheme of, of how men can be redeemed. Okay? God is the one that thought about the process and, of course, made the sacrifice. It is his great wisdom. That's why the salvation is great, because of the great wisdom of God involved in this. This wisdom is great is because it is complete. Look there in the book of Hebrews, the seventh chapter. In Hebrews chapter 7 there, beginning in verse 24, But this man, because he continues forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. The priesthood that Paul enjoyed under Christ Jesus is the same exact priesthood that we have. It hasn't changed. Two millennia. Not changed for about 2,000 years. Therefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. If he saves us to the uttermost... Why do we need anything else? If it's complete, we don't. For such a high priest was befitting us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who need not daily as as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. Now, when it said this he did once, that word once means one time for all time. One time was it. Didn't have to do it over and over again. It was one time for all time. And that, of course, is what we have in Christ Jesus. It is complete. And that we can be made complete in Christ Jesus. All that we need when it comes to redemption is found in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9. Cain read that this morning. We don't need to read that again. But it's the point that we have a complete system of redemption. Have you ever noticed some things that they always, the new and improved. It's kind of like computers, you know. First computers come out. Next thing you know, okay, well, we had Windows. And then we had Windows 95. And Windows 2000. And, uh, Windows, uh, we're on Windows 10 now. And it's always new and improved. And always updating. And always doing all these things to make it better. 
Or they come out with some detergent, and the next thing you know, a few years later, they have time. The new improved, whatever, new improved tide. And the point is, like, you have to amend, you have to update, you have to make it better. But not redemption, not salvation, not the great salvation that is described in this book. It's complete. The very things that helped Paul and the people of the first century are the very things that we need today. Same exact things. That's why the Bible is a living book. It's, it's, it's valuable. There are a lot of interesting things traveling to other countries. One of the interesting things traveling to other countries with other languages, other customs, is the Bible is 100% functional everywhere. It, it works everywhere. It transverses the, uh, the continents, it transverses languages, and it transverses time. The first century, this great redemption that we have talked about, that was prophesied and was revealed there in the first century by the apostles and prophets, it's the same message today. We don't need any uh, updates. We don't need any booster shots. It's kind of like tetanus shot. You know, you, you, you have a bad accident, you step on a nail, you go get a tetanus shot, and then several years down the line, you step on a nail or you get a deep cut, and you go to the emergency room, and the doctor says, well, when's the last time you had a booster shot or had a tetanus shot? You're like, well, I don't know. I, it was a lot. Well, they only last for like 10 years. And you do what? Well, you get another tetanus shot. You get a booster shot to add to that. Well, that's not the way redemption, that's not the way salvation works. What worked in the first century worked throughout, it's going to work through your whole life of this great scheme of redemption. It is complete. That's why the salvation is great. Let me suggest the greatest being planned it. That would be, of course, God. Look there in the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 6. In Hebrews chapter 6, notice there in verse 13, talking about the event with uh, uh, Abraham, when he offered his son Isaac, and then God, by an oath, confirmed uh, uh, the promise that he was going to make. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. So God swore by himself. Why? Because God is the greatest being in the universe. There's nothing greater than God. That's why their salvation is great, because the greatest being planned it. And brought it all to pass. And we are a recipient of what this greatest being did for us. And it also has eternal consequences is why this salvation is great. Notice there in the book of Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, look there in verse 2. Titus 1 verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Eternal life. The salvation in Christ Jesus has as a blessing the promise of eternal life. But notice in Romans chapter 5, that just when we receive salvation, which means to be rescued, it also involves to be rescued from what? Romans 5 and verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You see, when we talk about redemption, we talk about forgiveness, we talk about the blessings of becoming a Christian, it involves two things. It involves a rescue from the wrath to come, eternal condemnation, but also the blessing of eternal life also comes. Both things happen. 
when we receive Christ Jesus. We are saved from eternal wrath and we receive eternal salvation. Eternal condemnation, eternal salvation. Eternal, eternal consequences. I mean, you can't even grasp. We can't grasp eternity. I mean, can you, can you get a hold of eternity? It's like trying to grab a hold of infinity. Of millions and millions and billions and billions and trillions and gazillions. And eternity is more than that. It's just, it's, 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 well, it's just, it's hard to grasp. The illustration I heard to help us try to maybe relate to infinity, it'd be like, you know, you, you ever been to the, to the seashore? You know, lots of sand on the beach. Lots of grains, you know, make up the sand, the beach, yeah, yes. And could you imagine a little bird just going and picking up one grain of sand and flying all the way to the moon, if that was possible, and how far the moon's away, and fly all the way to the moon, drop that little grain of sand, and then fly all the way back. How much time that would take? That would take a long time. 200,000 miles, pretty long trip. And so fly all the way up there to the moon, drop one grain, fly all the way back. Now multiply that by how many grains of sand there are in the world. I mean, it's phenomenal. You're, you're talking, and that eternity would be even more than that. And so, when we talk about this great salvation, the reason it's great is because of eternal consequences, that we are going to be saved from the eternal condemnation, but on top of that, we're going to receive eternal life in the world to come, which we call heaven, which we studied about this morning. And we have to get on that road. That's a choice. You don't get on it by automatic. You're not on it because your parents are on it. You're not on it because your grandparents are on it. You're not on it because your spouse is on it. You're not on it because your kids are on it, your grandkids are on it. You're on it because you choose to be on the road that leads to salvation. Another reason why the salvation is great is because it is a free gift. Romans 6 and verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, did you hear that? Gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is given to us freely by God. Isaiah chapter 55. Cody read Isaiah 53. The Lord's Supper, Isaiah 53, describes Jesus' suffering on the cross. The price that was paid. Isaiah chapter 54 is that the, the, the borders of the kingdom would spread. Isaiah chapter 55 is the invitation. And notice what it says there in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye and buy and eat. And come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Could you imagine they come across on the radio, uh, Monday morning at the Kroger here on South 27, come between the hours of 8 and 10 and get all the groceries you can carry in your basket and it's absolutely free. Everybody, well, you know, they'd be calling work. Right? I, I, can I get off for a couple hours? And we'd all be running down to Kroger so we could go to the Kroger and start getting all these groceries because we don't have to pay anything for them. Well, that's the imagery that is used here. I mean, we all go to supermarkets and buy. That happens everywhere. I mean, well, what's interesting, it's like in old times where, where people had to walk and so they'd have little grocery stores about every so often where you could just walk. Somebody would be involved in... Selling groceries. And that's the way it still is in some of the foreign countries is that they're all, they call them little uh, americanos, And that is, they're just little grocery stores that people set up in their houses and you just walk down the street and you go down there and buy things that you need. And yeah, they have some of the bigger markets, but they have the little small stores to, to buy things. 
Everybody would understand that, and so you could understand the image that you're going to this place to get some stuff to buy that you need. And you don't have to pay anything. Whoa, that is great. That's wonderful. Well, that's the concept and the imagery that is used that we can go and buy all these spiritual things to sustain our spiritual life, and they're absolutely free without money and without price. I mean, what do we have to pay for all this? Nothing. It's free. It's given conditionally. Yeah, there's conditions, faith and obedience, but it's still given freely. It is a free gift. And another reason why this salvation is great, this great salvation, not only because of the wisdom that was was used to plan it, that it's complete, that God, the greatest being, is the one that brings it all past, the eternal consequences and the free gift, and that is the greatest sacrifice, this great sacrifice was made, the greatest sacrifice was made, and that Jesus died on the cross to bring about this salvation, this rescue from sin for us. In the book of Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, notice that in verse 32, Romans chapter 8, and in verse 32 it says, He that spared not his own son, that word spared not, that's an interesting term. It's, it comes from a word where we get our word stingy. God was not stingy when it comes to our redemption. He spared not, he was not stingy. And that he gives his own son and delivered him up for us. How shall we? Uh, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Well, now if God gave us son, surely He's going to give everything else that's necessary for this redemption, and surely it is. He will do all the things that are necessary to bring about our redemption in Christ Jesus, because God gave His Son the greatest gift. He's going to give us everything else that will be necessary, and needful for us to be what we need to be. And so that's what we need to uh, appreciate and understand. Now I want to notice uh, in the book of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. This morning, uh, generally, when I, uh, the Lord's Supper is, is being served, I open my Bible to various places. And, of course, with electronic Bible, you've you got the advantage of having a lot of translations. I've got several translations. I've got... Uh, I don't know, I got like 10 or 12 translations and a couple of Spanish versions. But I was reading in the New English Translation. And, you know, sometimes translations give just a little bit of variance, a little bit different uh, tone to the, I mean, the same sense, obviously, generally. But a few different words just sort of sticks out. And so it was reading here in Romans chapter 5. It says in verse 6, For while we were still helpless... At that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Parentheses. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. And you have some, you know, Secret Service fellows that they'll jump in front of a bullet for the president, you know, somebody pretty important. And when he says for a righteous man, you know, some will stand up to die for them, and Maybe for somebody that's really, really good, somebody would jump up uh, uh, to, 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 to help them and to try to save them. But God did, demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now look at verse 5. He says we were helpless, ungodly, and verse 8, sinners. Who did Jesus die for? Helpless, ungodly, 
Sinners. Who did Jesus die for? Helpless and godly sinners. Who's that? Well, that's me. That's all the rest of us. Helpless and godly sinners. That's who Jesus died for. That's who Jesus died for. What a tremendous sacrifice that was made for our sins and our transgression as we think about this great salvation. It was all made possible because the greatest sacrifice was offered in order that we can enjoy this. All right, the third and final point of this great salvation. We've talked about the development from eternity to past to eternity to future. We've talked about reasons why this salvation is great. Finally, let me talk about three great wonders of this great salvation. Three great wonders. Number one, people rejected. There in Matthew chapter 7, as uh, Cain introduced the whole ideal of the way to heaven, <clears throat> he didn't notice this aspect of the text, but let me notice this aspect of the text. In Romans, uh, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 7, 13 14, enter ye in at the straight gate, that is the compressed, narrowed uh, gate, for wise the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. You see, many, most are in the broad way, the easy way. But the text says, the narrow way, the straight and narrow way, only a few will find it. Only a few will believe. Only a few will do what is necessary in the accepting of the gospel of Christ into their hearts and lives. You think, well, why? I mean, the... the, the the blessings, the, all the wonders of, of, the, of why the salvation is great. I mean, all the reasons we've talked about and this great scheme of redemption of eternal life, eternal salvation to escape eternal condemnation. You think, well, everybody will want this, surely. And the answer is no. The majority of the people reject the offer of salvation. And that's, to me, that's quite amazing. You used to stand dumbfounded about it. Sometimes when I get in big crowds, maybe you're at a fair, you're at a you know, ball game, or whatever it is, and you see big throngs of people. And people scuffle, uh, scuffling here and there, moving here and there, and just so busy, busy, busy. And I'm thinking, you know, according to what Jesus said, the majority of people don't even, don't even blink an eye. They don't... They don't they don't bat an eye about salvation and redemption. They're just busy like a bunch of ants about the here and now, and they never think about eternity. And to me, why is it that the majority of the people of the world are in the broad way? They, why not accept Christ? It's a better way. It leads to everlasting life. We're only going to live here temporarily. And all the logical reasons why to be a Christian, I mean, most of us understand because we've become Christians. But it's a wonder... When you stop to think about it, the majority of the world have rejected Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation. That's one great wonder. There's another wonder about this great salvation. And that is, sometimes as Christians, we neglect it. Go back to our text there in the book of Hebrews. Go back there to Hebrews chapter 2 and let's look at that text again. It says uh, <clears throat> there in Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. So the writer is addressing Christians from a Hebrew background. 
And though he was talking to them specifically, it includes all of us. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard less than any time we should let them slip. That's an interesting phrase there, the ideal, lest we should let them slip. The marginal reading of, of my Bible says, to run out as a leaking vessel. Have you ever been out hiking out uh, on some trail somewhere out in the woods and the hills? And you're kind of thirsty and, and you know that there's a spring or you come up on a spring. It's like all oh, this water coming out of, the, out of the ground. You know it's pure. It's, it's good. And you stop and you, you bend down and you scoop up some water. What happens? Well, you better get to your mouth and drink it pretty quick because it's going to leak out. That's what's going to happen. We used to go to the country and we had cistern water. The cistern water come off the roof. And in the cold weather, we were burning wood stoves, and so the smoke would get in the water, and so the water, the water would taste smoky, and it was like, it was horrible. I thought I would die of thirst there. <laughs> Every weekend, we'd go to the country and have to drink that smoky water. But in the summertime, yeah, I mean, it's nothing unhealthy. I mean, it's not deadly or anything like that. It just tastes bad. I mean, in the summertime, you could go down to the creek, and there was a spring that flowed in, and that water was so good. You'd go down and get that spring water, but you'd scoop it up. Now, you could bend way down and just suck it up with your lips, but it was easier if you could just scoop it up in your hand and get you a drink. But you had to do it quick. Why? Because it, it begins to run out. And that's what the writer, the imagery that he's using when it comes to our Christianity, we have to stay at it. When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our service, we got to stay out a while because it'll soon slip away. It'll begin to just kind of, uh, kind of wax and wane. It's kind of like electricity. You know, electricity is burning great. I mean, look at these lights. They're all bright. We don't need to get a flashlight. We don't need to turn on our cell phone with the, with the little light, you know, to see our Bibles and stuff like that. Wow, the electricity is working good. But let me tell you something. You turn the lights off. That's it. It's only good for today. Not good for tomorrow. It's not good for yesterday because yesterday's done gone. Not good for the future. You've got to use electricity every day. And so it is with our faith. We've got to rejuvenate it. We've got to re-energize. We've got to stay connected in Jesus Christ, constantly staying at. To give the more earnest heed, the writer says, when it comes to our redemption. And what was happening? Well, these Christians, these Hebrew Christians... They were not thinking right, and they were going back to old thoughts, and they're thinking, you know, they looked at the temple, they looked at the, you know, the temple worship, and all the pomp and the prestige, and here they were, a ragtag band of people. Maybe they're meeting in people's houses, maybe they met in some storefront, maybe they met under an oak tree, and you know, it seemed, you know, the worship of Christians seemed pretty simple. I mean, what we do tonight, we have singing, uh, we don't have any special clothing. You know, we're just sort of regular people, and we meet in this building, and that seems pretty simple compared to the ornate service of the Jewish service or, or some of the denominations. We think, well, we, you know, maybe, maybe what we left wasn't, what not, maybe, maybe we need to go back. And, our, and the whole book of Hebrews is the epistle of better things. Everything you want to look at from the spiritual standpoint, and you have to see it by faith, it, we, everything is better. Don't neglect this. We have to stay with it. And so it is with our Christianity. We have to stay with it and not neglect it. Kind of like your teeth. You know, you could take a hammer and you could just take a hammer and go, just break all your teeth out. Take care of it. Or you can just simply neglect your teeth. You never brush your teeth. You never 
floss, you never get checkups, you get some small cavities, you don't take care of them, you don't get them fixed, etc., etc. You just neglect your teeth, and they'll just go bad. It's kind of like your house. You can let little things just slip and slide. Well, it's not that bad. Ah, it's just a small leak in the roof. Ah, it's just a little problem here, a little problem there. You just neglect it, and it all just starts running downhill. And that's what the Hebrew writer is saying. Don't neglect. Give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. We have to stay after our Christianity of what it means to be a faithful Christian. And what do we see? Christians, sometimes we neglect this great salvation. You have to stand amazed at that. Why, why would we neglect something so precious? It's like somebody gives you a brand Lamborghini. Brand spanking new, and you just neglect it. You got a nice garage, and you fill it full of junk worth a thousand bucks, and you park your Lamborghini out in the out in the weather. That doesn't make sense. Why? The Lamborghini is worth so much money. It's it's a two hundred fifty thousand dollar vehicle, and you just storing all your junk in the garage. Why don't you just get rid of the junk where you can store your Lamborghini in the garage? Don't that make better sense? Well, that's what happens. We have such a precious gift in Christ Jesus and sometimes we neglect it. You know, we miss services, we're not studying, we're not praying, we're not doing the things we need to be doing. We neglect our great salvation. And then the third wonder of this great salvation is that people are transformed. It is tremendous how people can be changed. In the book of uh, Romans, chapter 8. <clears throat> in the book of Romans, chapter 8, and down there in number 29. Romans, chapter 8, and verse 29. <clears throat> Paul says, For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his dear Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. See, Christianity transformed. That we can be once a child of Satan, sinful, selfish, ungodly, wretched, but we can be transformed, be become into the image of God's dear Son, become a Christian, become a child of God. Second Corinthians five verse seventeen, he says, "If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new." Most of you, well, let's say a lot of you, know Gary Sandusky. He's a great guy in so many ways. He's preached many years up in uh, up in Indiana, and preached a lot of places throughout the country and other countries and in the world. But he has an interesting history. He was kind of a hippie fellow, a fellow that you know involved in alcohol and drugs, long hair, ponytail, all that kind of stuff. But he was transformed by the gospel. Tremendous example of self-sacrificing individual, of a great servant of the Lord. And I remember a, fellow, a lady saying one time, you know, I never pull up to a stoplight and I look over and see a, some hippie guy with a ponytail or whatever, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, like a part of a motorcycle gang to think, you know, there could be another Gary Sandusky there. Anybody can change. Anybody can be transformed by the power of the gospel. And that's a tremendous wonder. No matter how bad, how ungodly, how wretched you, your life was in time past, you can come to Christ and be transformed. And that is an awesome wonder to see people transformed by the power of the gospel, by this great salvation. Well, the writer said, how shall we escape? 
See, the question was, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation as the writer talks about, how shall we escape? If we just let these things slip and we neglect. The question is, how shall we escape? Well, if we reject it, or if we have accepted it, and then as a Christian we neglect it. If we reject it, or if we neglect it, how shall we escape? The answer is, well, we cannot escape. Escape the coming day of judgment. Escape the coming day of judgment when we will give an account of ourselves. If we have rejected this great salvation in the day of judgment, we will not escape the wrath of God. If as Christians we had obeyed the gospel, but then we neglect this great salvation, we just let it slip away, and we just not attentive to the things, and not giving them words, teach the things that we have heard. If we neglect it, we as Christians, we will not escape either. We will wind up in the uh, lake of fire and the pronouncement of the Lord. But by Jesus Christ, we can escape. There are steps. There are things that we do in response to to this great message, that we hear this great scheme of redemption of how Jesus died on the cross. And that we, upon hearing this message, this good news, to say, yeah, this is it. This is what I need. This is what I want. I want this redemption. We accept it by faith and obedience, believing, of repenting. That's the tough one. Acknowledging, say, yeah, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And being baptized, to be baptized into his death, to make contact with the blood of Christ. We can enjoy this great redemption and just be faithful. Be faithful. He that endureth the end, the same shall be saved. Be thou faithful unto death. I mean, those are the exhortations of the Scriptures. Don't neglect this great salvation. And just grow and be faithful. And if we do it, maybe, maybe we have neglected this great salvation. Maybe we've maybe not been what we should be as a Christian. We've, we've neglected it. It's time to get a turnaround in the mind and say, hey, I don't want to neglect this anymore. The salvation is too great. It's too wonderful to pass up. I don't want to take any chances. I need to get by to be dedicated. Faithful. What's the word faithful mean? Just flip that word around. Full of faith. Faithful is a person that's full of faith. And if we're not careful with our, with our Christianity and to attend to it, we can let these things slip away from us. So we extend the invitation of Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you need to respond, and we can help in any way, you come and let us know why together as we stand and as we sing.